This is Jobmakers, and I'm your host, Denzel Mohammed. Immigrants and refugees are a net economic benefit to the United States. Research has consistently shown that they create jobs, fill key gaps in the labor market, and add an important dynamism to our economy. This is the case even when there's initial investment on behalf of the state, through education, English classes, or welfare. Immigrants pay more into the system than they get out. For Christina Chi, who started a hedge fund at just 22, the welfare she was on in her early years in Utah after moving from China helped stabilize her youth and pave the way for her to attend MIT. She went on to co-found Domeyard, a quantitative trading firm in 2013, which is among the longest-running high-frequency trading hedge funds in the world. And she was trading up to $7 billion a day. In 2019, she founded Databento, an on-demand data platform for asset managers and quantitative analysts. Being an immigrant, Asian, and a woman in the cutthroat world of Wall Street didn't deter her, nor did she forget those who helped get her where she is today as you'll soon learn in this week's Jobmakers podcast. All right. Welcome, Christina. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your company. Yeah. So my company, uh, what happened was actually I started my first company when I was still a student in college uh, about uh, almost nine or 10 years ago now. And I was in my dorm room, you know, we decided I just worked on wall street and uh, decided to like, might as well start a, a hedge fund. Cause I didn't get a return offer actually. So I didn't know what to do. <laughs> Started trading on my own. And then eventually realized like this could you know, be my own thing. And uh, then we ended up growing this fund and uh, maybe eight or nine years later, you know, we were trading around $7.1 billion a day. Um, we did, we were in a controversial industry that was high frequency trading, um, which has been a lot, you know, in the news again, a lot recently. Um, but uh, we never did payment forward flow or any of the kind of controversial things, you know, described in that um, the book, mainly the only thing we did is just use technology to do trades. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, what happened was actually, um, you know, we started my, I started my second company mainly because at the first company at the hedge fund, I spent a, a lot of my time dealing with you know, data vendors and data, you know, related problems in general, um, and kind of realized like, instead of, you know, manually dealing with these data things, and, you know, it takes us sometimes 10 months to a year to get the data sets we needed, um, might as well try to, how, how about we streamline the entire data licensing process and make data more accessible, more available to, to everyone out there um, and to folks like us, you know, who were just starting up and we, we desperately needed data sets, but we didn't have the budget, you know, to pay for, uh, all the expensive, um, you know, bulk services out there. And so decided to start um, a more friendly and more bottom-up uh, data-related service. So it's called Data Bento. It's my second company. We literally just started it um, a few years, literally, I think one and a half years ago now. <laughs> and um, yeah, I guess it's still it's still technically pre-launch, uh, but we did just raise a seed round last week. So um, really excited to be, you know, moving on to something a little bit more meaningful than a high-frequency trading firm and hopefully will help to give people more access to market data and to alternative data as well. That's excellent. And I think we will, we're definitely going to dive into this much more. Uh, but I want to learn more about you. And um, so perhaps tell us a little bit about where you grew up 
and what that experience was like, both I imagine you don't have a lot of memories of China since you moved at age three, uh, but growing up with your family in Utah, that must have been such a sh- culture shock, such a change. Yeah, you know what's weird is I, I barely remember anything about China, but I do remember feeling the shock of moving to America. I grew up in northern Utah, uh, in Logan, actually, which is where my parents were going to school at the time. They were in grad school. Um, but I do remember kind of like suddenly just not knowing the language, you know, <laughs> and being shocked because I didn't know what it meant to move um, to another country. I didn't know they were, you know, when you're three years old, you kind of don't really know there's other countries <laughs> or anything like that. And so I think the biggest thing for me was just kind of losing a sense of identity at the very beginning. And um, suddenly everything's different. You know, I do remember those, those uh, Asian lunchbox moments, which a lot of my friends talk about as well, you know, where um, my parents would make like uh, dumplings and, you know, really awesome stir fry and, and, uh, you know, take, we, I would pack it for lunch for preschool, but then all the students would be like, gross, that smells so bad, you know, icky. And, and then just going home, I, I would dump it in the trash and then go home. And my mom, I demand my mom make me, you know, chicken nuggets and French fries. I've had memories like that, that are really key to, um, I don't know, just core memories like that, unfortunately. <laughs> Growing up, um, I was one of the few kind of Asians in my hometown at the time. And uh, just trying to remember, yeah, I think it's it's a familiar story for people who grew up in, you know, smaller towns or um, towns when there's not a lot of minorities or people who look like you. Uh, so you do get a lot of questions and people might look at you a little funny sometimes. Um, but uh, I think the biggest thing I wanted to do when I was a kid is just like try to be American, <laughs> you know, and I think that's something as well. Like when I became a teenager, right, the first thing I did, I dyed my hair, I had an overall good childhood. Um, you know, have learned to appreciate my my identity as well as my parents, you know, who barely speak English, um, you know, and uh, used to be ashamed of that. That's actually what I wanted to get into. What was the move like for your parents? Um, You know, for them, it was it was the American dream that it was the most amazing thing that's ever happened to them was coming to the United States. Like, I'm just being honest with you guys. Like when I came over, right. For me, it was traumatizing. It was like identity crisis. It was like, I want to fit in because I'm a rebellious teenager. Um, But my parents, it was just like, you know, they've had it so much worse. And when they were growing up, they've seen, you know, things that, you know, first off, like even just with the one child policy in China, not to get political or anything, right? But they've always wanted me to have a sibling. And when they came to America, finally, they're like, oh, we can finally give you a sibling, you know? Um, so just things like that, even where, oh, now I have a brother, by the way. So, <laughs> so yeah, like just having that freedom um, for them was just incredible. And seeing how friendly the neighbor, you know, people welcoming to them. And so I think they viewed it a lot more differently than how I viewed it, <laughs> you know, where they're just grateful to to be alive and to be in a country where they can pursue a higher education and where they can get an amazing job so easily outside out of college. And well, at least back then, nowadays, it's a little different during COVID, you know, during this time, but at least back in the day, you know, it was, um, it just for them felt like so incredible to see this. And also, oh, the fact that like, um, you know, we, we were on welfare, you know, for some time, but the fact that the government could subsidize my education, you know, pay for, and there's public school, which is amazing. And also pay for, um, you know, my, my dentist appointments, my doctor's appointments. I didn't know that, you know, for me, I didn't even know that this was all free and, or subsidized, you know, by the government, but, um, but for my parents, right. To be able to have that support and assistance with the government, like that was also a dream come true. You know, I wish I could say I was just inspired by an experience or inspired by someone or something, but uh, to be honest, the real answer is just, um, 
I started my company out of a series of failures in my life, <laughs> a series of rejections and failures and, and kind of bad experiences, to be honest. Um, you know, and in college uh, in America, you get internships every summer, pretty much, uh, at least in MIT, like, you know, it's so much pressure that it's like every student just feels like the pressure to get an internship, even if they don't qualify. And so, uh, so I got an, an internship, um, you know, oh, actually three, I did three internships in finance. Um, and uh, the kind of final internship I did was like my junior summer where uh, I was a really bad intern. And, um, and I kind of realized I just wasn't a good fit for the culture and the kind of cutthroatness of um, you know, not all of Wall Street, but just uh, at least the team and the company that I was in at the time. And then um, just with a terrible intern, I didn't get a return offer, uh, came back and felt very dejected <laughs> and uh, didn't know what I wanted to do because I, you know, either have to apply to full-time jobs. It's really difficult to, you know, apply full-time without having, um, you know, if you go, the, the easiest route is you get an internship, you get a full-time offer, right? And then you're all set, but I didn't get one. And so I came back to campus, didn't know what to do and um, just uh, started to, as a hobby, just like, you know, trading a little bit on my own here and there. Um, and this was before Robinhood, you know, before the time when Robinhood came around and made it easy for everyone to start trading. Uh, so we were just trading here and there with uh, other types of other brokers. And then, um, and then kind of realized like, this is really fun. <laughs> and, and then just kind of started doing that. Um, and what happened was um, one of my call, one of my, who became someone who became my co-founder eventually his roommate, um, you know, came from uh, a wealthy family uh, in Europe and they gave us, I think it was like a hundred thousand dollars. It wasn't a lot of money, but they just um, pretty much lent us about a hundred thousand to trade at the time. Um, and I think by the end of like the semester, something like that, we had made maybe around $40,000 uh, from that. And I was like, holy crap, like, you know, I, I was $40,000 in debt at the time <laughs> and, you know, college loans and everything. Right. And I was like, if I can pay off my college loans with this, if I can like, this is a sign that like, I can do this on my own. And so it's just really empowering to realize like, you know, and it wasn't like that we can make a lot of money or anything, but just more like, Hey, I could maybe just make a living doing this on my own. If, if I'm not a good fit for the culture of, um, of wall street at the time or for that company, at least I can do my own company. So yeah, that's how we started was just um, a string of rejections and failures that kind of led into this. Women in your field, uh, that's not entirely common, especially when you started. And um, so you really stand out in that regard. Talk about being a minority, being a woman in your field. Oh, man. Um, I mean, I always start with telling the story of, uh, you know, I was at a, a giving a, about to give a keynote talk on stage at a, it was a conference. I think it was at the Schwartzman Library in New York, uh, which is like, there's all these dinner tables. Like it was a dinner, big gala event. Everyone's like sitting around. It's a head fund, you know, conference. And uh, and I was walking up to the stage and a guy goes, excuse me, ma'am, we're done with our, you know, can you clear our plates? We're done with our dinner. And I turn around and you know, he's clearly looking at me and like earnestly like motioning to his table and the plates. And I was like, I just kind of froze. And I was like, oh my God, he's talking to me. And so then I, I kind of just said like, I think he said something like, I'll take your plates as soon as I give my keynote speech up on stage. Okay. So just give me like, uh, give me 30 minutes. I'll be back down to take your plates back to the kitchen. And, he, and I mean, the whole table just like, you know, they actually um, scolded, you know, they laughed. They're like, kind of was like, Oh, I can't believe you just did that. Right. And afterwards he came up to me and he was like, I'm so sorry. That was not my intention at all. Like I just totally, my mistake, you know, mistaken you as a waitress. And I was like, yo, it's okay. Right. It happens. Right. And, um, and you know, he was like, well, you know, I promise I'll never do that again. 
is there anything I can do? Like I'll treat you to dinner, you know, whatever you want. Right. And I was like, Oh, don't, don't worry. Right. Don't worry about it. Like just, uh, next time, you know, if maybe if someone in your company wants to speak, uh, try to promote a woman or, um, have a woman up on stage, uh, you know, cause you, the, the reason why I didn't, you know, it's pattern recognition, right. If you don't see any women up on stage uh, in this industry, then the first time you do, you kind of like, wait, something feels wrong when you do finally. Um, and so I think that's what it is, just pattern recognition of making sure you, you know, the, the more you give people opportunities, uh, women in POC, minorities, people who don't look like you to go up on stage and to speak and have their voice be heard, right? Um, the more you, not only is it inspiring to the younger generation, but also, you know, it becomes normal to you and, and you stop mistaking them as waitresses <laughs> when they're walking up on stage and stuff like that. So anyway, I just told them, you know, just, just, uh, you know, be helpful to the women on your team. And, and, uh, this is stuff that they go through all the time. Right. And they're, he was like, yeah. And I ended up becoming friends with him. And that's the other thing I realized is a lesson for me because I learned that like, look, I could have yelled at him. I could have been rude to him and I could have totally like been offended. I, I was a little bit, but, but still, right. It was like, um, I just treated it as like, look, I used a little bit of humor to deflect that first. And, and then he realized his mistake by himself, right? People realize their own mistakes, right? And he, people don't have bad intentions, right? Like no one wants to be called a racist. No one wants to, you know, say that, kind of, right? It's kind of like, um, they want to improve. People want to improve. And so he realized that he realized he wanted to improve. And I gave it, you know, used it as an opportunity to, to learn uh, for, for both of us. And I think that was something that was, you know, really important. And so, so yeah, you know, that's uh, in a nutshell, <laughs> kind of what it's like uh, to be, you know, um, I work in not only in the hedge fund space, there's not a lot of women, but also in high frequency trading, you know, there's not a lot of women who are at the top of um, this industry as well. And so for me, it was, yeah, you know, it did feel lonely at times. And there were times when I wish I could have reached out to another woman for help with certain things here and there. Um, but, you know, like I... I have a good group of friends and uh, usually what I do when I need help, when I desperately need help, if I'm, um, if people, sometimes like people will send me very verbally abusive messages on my emails, for instance, or call me different names that only women can get called. <laughs> um, and, and so I'll just send it over to friends. I'll be like, what, what do you recommend? You know, what should I say? And I have a bunch of friends who are amazing and they'll come in and be like, oh, you should, you know, just uh, ignore it or, um, or report it or, you know, whatever it is. But uh yeah, so I do feel at the end of the day still very lucky to have a support network, to have a group of people who I can rely on whenever I feel down. <laughs> Data Bento is not your first venture. Your first venture was Dome Yard. So um, talk us through the process of you know starting that business and what that was like and give us maybe some of the nuts and bolts so we can learn uh, how to do it ourselves. So... I don't know how to begin. We started it from a dorm room. You know, we obviously didn't have any connections or money or much to begin with. And by all statistics, by all textbook means, we should have failed, right? Like if you look at stats on like hedge fund success rates, it's already pretty small amongst established veterans who are starting <laughs> funds. But then, you know, for college age kids, it's almost like non-existent. There's not a lot of um, college age students who successfully start a fund and or manage to run it for so many number of years, you know, um, before leaving and maybe doing something else, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I, I guess um, I'll start with a couple of things. I think the first thing is there's a book called Principles by Ray Dalio. Um, and it's like a famous book in, I guess, within our industry and also outside of our industry these days. But um, 
he writes about all the principles at Bridgewater. He's like this billionaire guy who um, started one of the most well-known hedge funds in the world called Bridgewater. And so um, he just kind of writes about all the principles that they had and how well it worked for them and how amazing his principles are. Um, and so when I started my hedge fund, you know, I was, I was a naive, uh, brash millennial, right? And so we wrote a set of principles like that we wanted for our hedge fund. And so um, there are principles, I'll just give you a list of examples, like, um, we wanted a flat structure, for instance, because uh, we wanted the culture to look more like a Google when you walk in the office, like to look more like Google, you know, with the free food and the, I don't know what Google has, but we just imagined it would be like yoga mats and ping pong tables and I don't know, more Silicon Valley style rather than like the cold Wall Street cubicles, you know, and um, that kind of culture. So and a uh, flatter structure, meaning like uh, we, you know, hire people maybe three times my age. And so just wanted to make sure that, um, you know, that there was a culture where people felt welcome. And so we made everyone a partner in the company. That was the title of everybody. Um, and so anyway, just long story short, all of the principles, almost all the principles that we created turned out to be wrong, 100% wrong in the end. And it's actually something that's why I'm writing a book about it is because, um, the principles that we thought like flat structure sounds cool. Like which, who doesn't want unlimited vacation? Who doesn't want like ping pong tables and foosball and yoga mats and soccer games? I don't know, and, like book clubs, all the cool stuff, right? Like that sounds great. But then we kind of, we quickly realized like um, people don't stay at companies because of the perks, like the free food and stuff. People stay, you know, they don't stay because of the yoga mats and the puppies. I would say because of puppies, but most of my colleagues want to stay because of puppies. Um, and so then I realized like people stay at companies, right? Because their voice is being heard, because their values, you know, their 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 um, contributions are being valued because they're they find meaning in their job and they love working with their team and you know they're making progress on their learning and so people stay because of the work itself ultimately not because of the free food and all the perks and and things like that and so we learned that the hard way because people were leaving us in droves you know that was part of our origin story was you've worked in high frequency trading which some people consider controversial mm-hmm. um you know, it's supposed to make the uh, climate uh, better for amateurs, for retail, but critics say it favors large institutions that have access to big data at the expense of smaller institutions and individuals. Um, and at the same time, you are really passionate about increasing financial literacy among the masses and giving back to underprivileged people. I mean, walk me through this. There is sort of a cognitive dissonance. And I, I felt that ever since college, to be honest, right? Like just even going one step back in college, um, my professors, my peers, even my parents are like, go out there and make do do good for this world, make a difference out there. You know, do you're privileged going to MIT, like go out there and do something better for, for society, right? And then you look at like the stats out of MIT, like literally half the people out of MIT go into consulting and <laughs> finance and Wall Street and, and uh, you know, or even like working for companies like Facebook or Google, where um, one of my co-founders, I think, interned at one of these like Wall Street firms and was in charge of like ads or something like helping, you know, doing like uh, basically st- not stealing user data, but you know what I mean, taking user data and like creating ads based on that data. Like, and I'm like, that's a career, <laughs> you know, like, even that kind of stuff, right? You argue, is it doing good for society? Yes or no? Or is finance doing good for society? Yes or no? Uh, there's a lot of gray areas and a lot of cognitive dissonance. I think a lot of students face. Um, and, and the other thing is like, as soon as my friends got a job at, you know, they got an internship at McKinsey or BP or Nestle or Apple, Google or Goldman Sachs, whatever it was, like we would celebrate with them. We would bake them cakes and celebrate. And, uh, and of course, everyone would feel that cognitive dissonance of like, oh, you know, my whole life I wanted to go into like, 
um, let's say nonprofit or make a difference out there on the field somewhere, but um, ended up getting an internship at, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs or somewhere, <laughs> you know, and so how do I deal with that, right? What And, and then you kind of realize like, wait a second, um, I think some of the justifications I told myself at the time, and I don't, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but to help people understand what millennials go through and, and younger people, you know, are going through college today. Um, what I told myself was, look, it's a competitive job environment, right? Like I, I had, a, I was already the, one of the easiest majors at MIT and I struggled to get jobs. Actually, I got rejected from, uh, you know, dozens of internships and finally I got one. And it was like, by total coincidence, by the way, it was with Goldman Sachs. <laughs> um, and of course I'm going to accept it because like, it's a high paying internship. I'm $40,000 in debt. You know, I um, really need to pay off my loans. And so, it was a competitive job environment. Um, I'm just going to get whatever I can, you know, do. And then maybe then the goal is like a lot of millennials will say, okay, I'll work there for a few years and then go off and make it. And that, that is true. That happens a lot where um, people do work for a few years, maybe um, make enough money or open enough doors that they can go off and work in a more interesting, maybe it's for a startup or for a nonprofit or something else. Um, that is a path that I've seen a lot more. And I wanted to ask about talent. I mean, you, I feel as though you're so uniquely positioned. Have you had a lot of issues finding talent uh, in, in terms of your staff in the past? Oh, you know, we, I mean, we used to at first, right? So, you know, when you're starting a startup, every, every startup has trouble finding staff and uh, at the very beginning, because you have to, no one knows who you are, <laughs> you know, surprisingly it got easier for the most random reason. And this is always a shock to people when flash boys came out. <laughs> so Michael Lewis wrote a famous book, he's a famous author, you know, behind like Moneyball and uh, the big short, a bunch of movies that have come out where Michael Lewis, um, you know, inspired by his books basically. But anyway, he wrote a book called flash boys uh, about high frequency trading. And, um, Basically, it pretty much just uh, revealing the industry, disparaging, you know, um, the, the industry and revealing a lot of the sketchy practices like payment border flow and stuff like that. Thankfully, things that we don't do. But anyway, um, it did destroy the reputation of the entire industry. Um, and so what happened was, you know, I actually was funny story. I, I would go to conferences right after Flash Boys came out. And uh, I just remember there's um, someone in the audience from like, I think it was Bank of America. And he like raised his hand and he was like, I hate everything you're doing. You're evil. You know, he just like, said, like, you should be in jail. You're front runners. And he called me a bunch of things. I was like, oh, um, and then had to learn how to deal with um, PR, you know, and handle crises early on, which is, uh, that's all fine. I get it. Like it happens to every company. Um, but I was, it's, I'm really into the story because um, then what happened was every high frequency trading firm, uh, pretty much they got rid of high frequency trading, like the, the, that, that, terminology on their websites. Um, they got rid of having to trading. They started calling it like electronic market making or quantitative trading, or they just got rid of their website altogether because <laughs> like they didn't want to be a part of the PR crisis that was going on in, in our industry at that time. And so I decided, you know what, let's just face this head on. And so in our, on our website in big, bold, like bold letters that said high frequency trading, like, like 10 times on the website all over the place, just that high frequency trading. Um, so what ended up happening was we ended up getting 30,000 job applications in a year all of a sudden because because what happened was, can you know, it's like the, what do you call that effect? Streisand? I don't know. There, there's an effect where like um, when you kind of, uh, there's people who like read this book and then they become interested in high frequency trading, <laughs> even though like that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to read it and like hate our industry, right? But people would read the book and then they were fascinated by this topic and they're like, wow, this is, I want to learn more. I want to work in this space. Well, I don't know why, but people, you know, got interested in it. And so when they Googled high frequency trading, we were number one on Google search for some time. Um, we won the SEO game because all the other companies 
yeah, eliminated it from their websites. And so, um, so yeah, like that's how we ended up getting really lucky and ended up getting a lot of applicants, had a huge pool of candidates to choose from. Um, and then, oh, the other thing that helped, by the way, another, uh, one of the principles we got right in our company was treating your competitors well. We always, we never disparage another company, right? That's just, that's just cruel. That's not how I want to live my life, right? Crapping on another industry, you know, whether it's high frequency trading or hedge fund, or whatever. Like, I don't do that. Um, but anyway, so, you know, we treated other companies very well, including other high frequency trading funds. And so when they, um, you know, we've had uh, instances where um, other funds have um, shut their doors for whatever reason, right? Liquidated for whatever reason. And so whatever that happens, like, you know, candidates will be like, where do I want to apply? I'm going to apply to companies that treated us well, right? To people who treated us fairly, treated us well back when we were enemies. <laughs> and so, so yeah, we get a lot of applicants also from other companies, at least at the time, we, you know, got a lot of applicants from other companies in the space as well, which is quite nice. And of course, we're not for everybody. And that's great. You know, we don't expect any, you know, everyone to apply or anything like that, never implying that, but just saying that it, it did help us a lot to just, just be nice and to have that philosophy in life that, you know, we don't want to, why spend your time just hating on everyone else, you know, um, when you can just live your life and do what's best for you and, uh, you know, do the things you love. So with your own adaptability, with your own uh, striving for equity and fairness, um, what are your visions for the future? You're not even 30 yet. You have your whole life ahead of you. There's so much impact that you can still have. I want to do more. I want to make a bigger impact. I think even today, what we're doing now, it's, it's awesome. I love it. And I love that it's closely related to my industry and helping to, you know, solve a problem that's within my current, you know, within the financial industry, which is great and giving people access to, you know, financial data. But I think in the future, um, I want to do more than that, you know, and maybe that means going out and uh, doing more nonprofit work or, helping um, my community in one way or another, maybe building a school one day. <laughs> I always wanted to like build a school and to, to help, um, you know, like the education system in, in various countries. Cause it just, it sucks, you know, that people don't have access to education and things like that. But, you know, these are spaces that I don't have a lot of experience in. And so I need to, I need to continue learning to continue reading, learning, you know, listening to people and um, really uh, trying my best to just see if there's other ways I can to give back. I think for me, that's what means a lot to me is like, just, uh, I think, and it also took me a lot of years to realize that, but, um, you know, for me, what makes me happy is like seeing other people happy <laughs> and seeing like that, uh, I've done something to maybe inspire someone or, you know, even just getting an email or getting a message saying, Hey, you know, you've been ins inspirational to me in my career path, or you've inspired me to go into finance. Um, that to me is awesome. I'm really happy that I've been able to hopefully inspire, uh, more, more women or more minorities to, you know, go into the space and to, pursue whatever they want to, right. Or start a new company, <laughs> um, stuff like that. So yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's all. I just want to do, do better for this world somehow. It's hard though, because there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of things that could go wrong, but it's just something that I, I hope I can do more of one day. <laughs> and finally, if you had to give one bit of advice to budding entrepreneurs out there, given your unique experiences, what do you think that would be? That would be to normalize rejection. <laughs> um, you know, as an entrepreneur on a daily basis, I continue to be rejected on a daily basis by whether it's by investors, by potential business partners, by 
um, potential candidates we want to hire, rejections happen to everybody. And the sooner you can normalize that in your career, uh, meaning like, look, it happens. Yes, it still hurts me every time, but I put it on a mountain of rejection. I call it a mountain of rejections. I just pile it onto this mountain of rejections and I just move on and I move on to the next candidate. I move on to the next opportunity, the next investor, right? And the sooner you can learn how to do that, the, the more you can learn to move on and to continue efficiently with your job and with your work. Oh, my goodness. Christina, thank you so much. This was such a lovely conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you. And I hope that uh, people are inspired by your story. And, and we look forward to so many more things from you. Thanks, Denzel. Thank you for this. It was a fantastic opportunity. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. know an outstanding immigrant entrepreneur or have suggestions for future programs, please let me know at denzel at jobmakerspodcast.org. That's D-E-N-Z-I-L. So happy that you joined us for this week's inspiring story of another immigrant entrepreneur. Join us again next Thursday at noon. I'm Denzel Muhammad, and thank you for listening to Jobmakers. Jobmakers.